0: this morning we will be looking to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Our texts these last few weeks have been exceedingly easy to find. If you have a Bible, you open it up to the very beginning, go past the table of contents, and there you are. Even if your Bible closes by mistake, you can get back into it very quickly again. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is inerrant, the word of the Lord is sufficient, and the word of the Lord is authoritative. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, to the tree of life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us of your goodness, of your commandments, and of your provision. Lord, we ask that you would use this word to change us, to create in us a greater desire to serve you and love you. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it seems as we continue to go from week to week, the schedule of our study gets more prominent and more difficult from week to week. It's like one of those exceedingly difficult sports schedules that you can't look ahead because every week has something that is significant for it. That's what we see here in Genesis. This is the, the beginning of all of the doctrines that we know and hold dear. And last week we looked at a story that is perhaps the saddest story in the Bible. It's the story of the fall. And we might be tempted this week to put that story out of our mind. After all, it's so negative. It's so gloomy and cloudy. It's so uh, not happy. Shouldn't we think happy thoughts? Shouldn't we just go with that famous mantra, Don't worry, be happy. You see, this is the way much of the world thinks about this story of the fall and sin. They want to put it out of their minds and not think about it. But God will not let us do that. He takes us now again and He shows us the consequences of this decision. The decision to disobey the commandment of the living God. And so this morning we will see that not only must we look again, at sin and the consequences of sin. There is a blessing that the Lord has for us in this. For it is only by thinking about and confronting our sin head on that we are able to see God's redemptive purpose in spite of sin. And so this morning I would like us to see three things about our text here in Genesis 3 in an attempt to make them Somewhat easy to remember, they all begin with P. There is first and foremost a parting from God. And then secondly, there is a punishment and the prospects of the life to come. And then thirdly and finally, there is a provision and a protection that God provides. A parting from God, punishment and prospects, and provision and protection. We see this immediately in verse 8 as we look here and we see a parting from God. Verse 8 begins, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Now imagine this. The Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, the one who gave Adam the breath of life and who took Eve from his rib that he would have a helper meet for him, wants to have a relationship with Adam and Eve. He's walking. He condescends to come down into the garden and to have fellowship with them. And they run away. They hide themselves. They want no part of God At all. So immediately, we can begin to associate with Adam and Eve. We didn't grow up in the Garden of Eden. We weren't formed directly from the dust of the ground, but we know what it is like to hide from God. You see, because this fall, this decision, this action that Eve and Adam both took caused a separation, a break in their communion with God there was a parting of the ways sin always has consequences no matter how much we try and ignore it no matter how much we try and explain it away sin has consequences and so immediately here we see the first consequence a parting from God and it begins with fear and avoidance now, there is a reminder here first of what was lost in the first part of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. The Lord God was walking in the garden. His, the sound of Him, or we might even say His voice, He was speaking perhaps out to Adam and Eve. What was previously the case was that Adam and Eve had fellowship with God and they had continual access to the Word of God. Directly from God. That was the estate that they were in. But sin changed them. All of a sudden now, they're ashamed. God hasn't changed at all. But their reaction to Him has. You see, now they see God in a new light This is what it means of a consequence to know good and evil. Now they know evil by experience. They know judgment in their conscience and in their heart, and they are afraid. They understand the power of God. They sense His power unrestrained before them. It's kind of like this. My kids know that when we go to amusement parks it takes an awful lot to get me on any of these rides that go about higher than here. I don't like them. We don't agree. Um, because as I go on these rides that drop or shoot up or go down, the only thing I'm thinking is, what if it goes off the track? What if the cable breaks? What if it wasn't oiled? You know, we've all seen those movies of the week about this. But it wasn't always the case. When I was a very young child, I enjoyed things like that. And there was a reason. The reason was, I didn't know about the risk. I didn't understand that bad things could happen. You see this in your own life, don't you? Isn't it amazing what you can do with a one, two, or three-year-old? You can throw them up in the air, sling them by their arm, toss them to and fro, do whatever you want. Because they are completely convinced nothing bad can happen. There's no risk. But once you become aware of the risk, you cease to enjoy any of that, don't you? You focus just on the negative. That's what's happening here in the garden. You see, now they have a new perspective on God, but that perspective has them tunnel vision focused on the judgment and the guilt that comes from sin. They have been changed, and so they are afraid and the very voice of God drives them away from God. The very fact that they hear God sends them off in the other direction, away from the one that they have communion with, away from hope. It drives them into the trees, Genesis says. They go off and hiding into the trees, away from God, thinking that they can avoid the situation. Could you imagine the conversation that they might have in whispered, hushed tones? Do you think he saw us? I don't know. Do you think he heard us? Shh! Maybe he'll just go by. Maybe he'll go want to go talk to the lion. Shh! Now, we think about that, and it's foolish, isn't it? It's almost as foolish as when you go into your child's room, and they hide from you by going under the covers. You've played that game, haven't you? Where are you? I have no idea where you are. Could you possibly be under the covers? I don't know, right? But you know all the time where they are. That's how foolish Adam and Eve are. This fear has driven them literally out of their right minds. They think they can hide from God by putting on some fig leaves and sitting amongst some trees. But there's a seriousness to this kind of foolishness. Because you see, if we're honest with ourselves, you hide from God in the same way. You think God can't see you sitting in front of that computer. You think God does not hear what you say under your breath as your parents walk away. You think that God does not understand or dwell upon what you do at work. But you see, of course he does. We cannot hide from God any more than Adam and Eve could. We may be afraid of the punishment that would come, but it does us no good to run and hide and avoid. It is impossible to hide from God. And all it does is increase our misery. Hiding from God takes us away from the place of hope, away from the place of mercy. But there's another thing we see here. That God loves us even when we run away. We've just been looking the past few months at the book of Jonah, the classic example of the one who ran away. And this reminds us that God loves us. He will not let us go when we run. And it begins right here. God asks this question. Where are you? Now, on one level, it's an incredibly foolish question because God, of course, knows where they are. But you see, this is not a question needing an answer. This is a question of opportunity. God is intervening in what is happening with Adam and Eve. Look at the beginning of verse 9. There's this little wonderful word, but. Adam and Eve were hiding. Adam and Eve were afraid. But God comes in and he begins. And notice where he begins. Satan started with the woman trying to manipulate, undermining God's order. We saw last week that Adam was there in the garden. So God begins with the one who's responsible. He says, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Now God is giving Adam a chance to admit what has gone on. God already knows where he is, but this is the way that we deal with sin, isn't it? We must admit it. We must come to grips with it. We must go to our Lord, run to Him, and confess our sin. This is how the world works even today. Because you see, Jesus Christ will not leave you alone in your comfortable. Jesus is not someone or something who is out there that if we happen to wander around and bump into Him, we can find forgiveness. No, the reason that the world hates Jesus is Jesus is in your face. He comes to you with questions. Where are you? Do you know who I am? Do you know what you've done? Do you have peace? You see, this is... The story of life, God, breaking in, in the midst of our fear and avoidance. But we also are parting from God, not just from fear. Because when God finds us, we have another defense mechanism that we bring up. Denial and excuses. And so what happens here is, is Adam first says, Oh, I'm not ready, God. I need just a little bit of preparation to talk with you. I'm naked and and I need to get clothed. I need to do some work here first before we can speak. Come back later, would you? And, and there's this very interesting thing that happens in the language. He says, I heard your voice and I was afraid. Now, the word here that is used not only means heard, but it also is the same word that is used for Obey. Because when you hear what someone has said, you obey it. And so on one level too, Adam is saying, well, I obeyed your voice. No, you didn't. (laughs) No, you're running away. You're denying and excusing. And God says, what have you done? And then Adam begins here with a very pitiful confession. God is very direct with him. He says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? And then emphatically he says, You know the one that I commanded you not to eat of? What did you do, Adam? Adam, like the man's man, like the manly man that he is, and like we all think that we are, he looks right at God and he says, It was his fault. What? Adam... You're in charge. You're the authority. You were there. You had the command. You had the covenant. Take some responsibility, would you? But Adam's not done. Do you see what he does here in the text? He says, well, the woman, the one you gave me, God, who's to blame? Is it Adam? Oh, no, no. Is it Eve? Eve? Well, it's God's fault. God, if you had never given me that woman, she never would have convinced me, and I would have been perfect. I'm completely not to blame at all. This is something that we see all the time, don't we? We live in a world of excuses. We live in a world of denial and misdirection. But you see, here it has deadly consequences. Not only has Adam sinned against the living God, he's blaming God for that sin. It doesn't get any lower than that. If Adam crawled around on the ground like the serpent, he would not be any lower. He blames God. And then, almost as an afterthought, almost as the way that someone gives you a pitiful I'm sorry, he says, well, and I ate. Eve, you, I ate. It's an afterthought. His personal responsibility is completely out the window. And God then turns to Eve. And he says, almost literally, what in the world have you done? It's it's a shocking kind of statement. It's very emphatic. And Eve spins her own excuse. She says, well, I was deceived. The serpent came. He deceived me. Now, this is true. But there's a difference between something being true and something being an excuse. Isn't there? Right? Why did you yell at your brother? Because I was tired. Well, that's good. That's true. But it's not an excuse. So it is here. Eve is responsible for what she has done because, you see, the standard for Eve, the standard for Adam, the standard for you is not how you feel, is not what you think, is not what someone tells you. It is the Word of God. God commanded. And so, therefore, both Adam and Eve are in the wrong. They've parted from God. So then God understands the situation. And He wants them to understand the situation as well. He knows exactly what they have done. He knows exactly what the consequences are. And He wants to make it clear to Adam and Eve. And so He begins to then go through, secondly, a litany of the punishments and prospects that they have for the future. Now He begins with the serpent. But I'd like to begin with the woman. He begins here in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So he begins now by stating what the reality of life is. Now these are not commandments. He's not saying thou shalt bear children in pain. He's saying this is the way it is. This is the consequences. Some of you parents have said that to your children, haven't you? You've made your bed. Not lie in it. Right? This is the way it is. These are the declarations of what life is like after the fall. Now, I want you to notice one thing first, before we get into the punishment aspect of it, is that the reality of the world doesn't change. Because the two things that are involved in the punishment involve commands from the garden. The first is to be fruitful and multiply. And the second is marriage. Both of those things go on despite the fall. That's a mercy of God. He could have said, I'm done with you, Adam and Eve. There will be no multiplying and filling the earth. There will be no marriage. I will blot you out. But those things continue on. But they continue on Affected by the fall. And so first, Eve is told that she will bear children in pain. Now, every woman can tell you the pain that is involved in childbearing if they've had a child. Whether they've had an epidural or not, they know that there are contractions and there are pains involved and etc. But I don't want us to focus on that. There's another kind of pain, isn't there? And this is the kind of pain that hits every woman, not just the one that have physical children. It's the kind of pain that comes when you see young people around you doing incredibly stupid things, ruining their lives, rebelling against the family, rebelling against authority, doing things that you know will have consequences that they will regret. There's not just physical pain here. The word here actually means heaviness. There's a weight It's the kind of pain and weight that keeps you up at night with heavy sighs. This is a result of the fall. This is what we see. It is a certainty. Not because just what goes around comes around. It's not just that your children will have the same effects that you had because that's life. No, it's because it's a part of the fabric of the world because of sin. But it's not just pain that she will experience. There's also a struggle. You see it here when it is described that she will have her desire for her husband and he shall rule over you. Now, what Satan has done is disrupt the order of the universe, disrupt the harmony of the marriage, disrupt the harmony of the world. And God says this has consequences. Women will desire to rule over men. If you don't believe me, read a newspaper. Watch the news. It's everywhere. And it's not just who gets to be in charge. Do you see how our society does this? They put women in charge by making them men or making them sexless. We're not allowed to have differences between men and women. Women are not allowed to be feminine. In order to be a good modern woman, you must be strong. You must use foul language. You must have other people fear you. You must not be tender. You must not want to just stay home with the children. You must press on. You must become as much like a fallen man as possible. Satan is still using these effects to destroy the family. And it doesn't help the woman that... Her desire will be to rule over the man, but he will rule over her instead in a sinful fashion. His leadership is now not for her own good. It is tainted with sin. And so the woman is in a very difficult spot. But the man also has punishment and bad prospects for life. To Adam he says, "...because you have listened to the voice of your wife... Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all of it, all the days of your life. Now, there's a little bit of poetic justice here in God. They ate what they were not supposed to. And God says, eating is going to be a very hard thing in the future. Try and grow food. In the garden, it would just spring up. Now, thorns, thistles... Sweat, pain, agony. Anyone who's ever had a backyard garden will confess to that. The one thing that anyone, even me, can grow in a garden is weeds. You don't even have to plant them. They come right up. You see, the ground itself has been cursed because of Adam. And now, work that God had given that was a very good thing, becomes painful and miserable. Sweat, misery, frustration. We don't have success with the things that we want to have success with. And there is no rest to be found. It's a miserable existence of sin. And God puts it this way. He says that you will work the ground... By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, and you shall return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will go out and serve the earth instead of serving God. So there's a punishment for the woman, a punishment for the man. But there's also a punishment and a prospect for the entirety of the world. And this is, I think, what we are seeing when the Lord addresses the serpent Now, he says something very interesting right from the outset in verse 14. He says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. He does not curse either Adam or Eve, but he does curse the serpent. This is a reminder to us in the midst of this that there is absolutely no hope for Satan. A bit of theological aside. Demons are fallen angels who followed Satan rather than God. There is no redemption for fallen angels. They have no hope. They have no sacrifice. They have no atonement. They are consigned to perdition and hell. Why do we say this? Why do we think about this? Because it reminds us that that is where we could be. There is no reason for God to intervene mercifully, as we'll see in a minute. Satan is cursed. He could have cursed Adam. He could have cursed Eve, done away with it, and started over or not. And he would have been righteous and good. But how merciful is God? Because you see, God will intervene. God also describes here a bigger struggle. He says... After consigning the serpent to crawling on the ground, he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the beginning of what we might call seed theology. That's what offspring are. It's seed in the Bible. It is a line, a lineage. And there is now going to be, from this point on, perpetual warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that conflict will not rest until the final day in which the seed of the serpent, the dragon himself, confronts or is confronted by the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is victorious. You see, this descendant, this offspring that we see here is not a physical descendant because you see, the very first seed of the serpent is the first child of the woman, Cain. John tells us that he was of his father the devil. This is what Jesus meant when he looked at the Pharisees who thought they had it all together, who thought they knew everything that was to be done, and he said, you are of your father, the devil, in John chapter 8. You see, this is about whom you will follow. Are you an offspring of Satan, because you hate God, and you have no time for Jesus, and you have no time for others, and you need to show no mercy to others, or are you of the offspring of the woman, the seed of Jesus Christ, because you have submitted yourself to him, You see that your only hope is in Him. You see, this is the warfare that will continue throughout all of the world. We think of warfare as being bad. Bring the troops home. Peace now. And God says, no, war. Not war amongst men. But war on sin. War on wickedness. War on Satan. Until victory is found. It's why we call spiritual development Christian warfare. It's why we sing, Am I a soldier of the cross? Or onward Christian soldiers? Because God started the war. And He has enlisted us. We are drafted in when we come into His family. We are made righteous. We are made a part of His family. And He hands us a sword. And He says, Get to it. The war is on. This is what the whole world has to look forward to. How can we view this? Well, lastly, we see the provision and protection that God provides. And it's an insight here as to the way we should look at this existence of the universe after the fall. We see it in verse 20. Then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now you see, God has given that promise of warfare, that promise that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. It's what we call the first gospel message. There is hope to be found that Jesus Christ will destroy the works of Satan. And Adam hears this promise, and the very first thing he says is, Your name is Eve we think, okay, what's the big deal about this? Shouldn't she have had a name before this? Doesn't Adam have other better things to do than to have a naming party? But Moses tells us what Eve means. Do you see it? Eve means the mother of all the living. Do you see how Adam has reacted to the promise of God? And to the punishment that has been meted out, he looks at it and he says, this punishment is here, but God has given me a promise. We will not surely die. God will provide. My wife will be the mother of all the living. Adam says, life will go on because God has provided. And by faith, Adam reaches out and he grabs a hold of it. And as much as Adam fell on his face in the garden, here he's a real man. Real men trust Jesus. Real men encourage their wives, protect their wives, lead their wives. And that's what Adam is doing here by faith. We also see the future that God will provide for them that Adam reaches out and grabs because God makes them a sacrifice. He takes animal skins and he clothes them with a garment. And the word here is very illustrative. You remember what Adam and Eve had tried to do to cover themselves up. They got a couple of leaves and sewed them together. The word for garment in the Hebrew implies not just a loincloth. It actually implies almost like a suit. Long sleeves, long pants, a full covering. It's as if God is saying to both Adam and Eve, your pitiful attempts at works righteousness are off the table. Let me show you how I provide. You think you can give yourself clothes? Watch me. And we know there's a cost here, right? Because for skins, there must be death. And with death comes the shedding of blood. This is a sacrifice that God gives that prefigures the sacrifice to come. God makes this sacrifice. But he not only provides for the future, he also mercifully protects them. Do you see what happens? There's good news here in verses 22 through 24. God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life, I'm going to drive him out of the garden and then I'm going to put a cherubim and a flaming sword, a flaming, whirling, twirling sword to make sure he can't get back in. And we read this and we look at this and we say, oh man, if only God wouldn't have done that, maybe we could get back in the garden. Maybe Adam could have gone back in. But you see, God here is mercifully intervening. He stops Adam from eating of the tree of life because that would have confirmed Adam in his sin and judgment. He would have lived forever, but he would have lived forever the same way that people live forever in hell. Apart from God, forever. So God mercifully stops him. He gets in the way Adam had stretched out to take that fruit and God sends him out of the garden and says, you will not do this again, Adam. You will not confirm yourself in judgment. And then God does something that seems harsh but is oh so merciful. He he keeps them out. He keeps them from coming back into the garden. He tells them there is no possibility of you trying to figure out a way to get back in. This is like the story our Lord tells of the feast and people try and climb over the hedges and sneak their way in and you cannot do it. You cannot sneak your way back into God's presence. You cannot sneak your way out of sin. You cannot trick God. There is no other solution. There is no list. There is no diet. There is no self-help book. The only way is God's way. Because you see, as this is happening, God knows that the consequence is that Jesus Christ will have to be sent and die a death of misery on a cross, that this could be fixed. It's very interesting in conclusion. The Bible really is a two-part book. But it's not a very balanced book. Part one is chapters one, two, and three. That's the story of how God made everything and how we completely messed it up. All the rest is God cleaning up after our mess for His glory and our good. That's the story of the Bible. Don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. Sin is real, but redemption is realer. Redemption is found in the work that God began here on that day that He cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, that He performed in the work of Jesus on the cross, and that He will complete in victory and glory when the war will be over forever. Praise to the Lord for the provision of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not spared us this story, but that you remind us that the work of your Son was necessary because of what we have done, because of our sin. Lord, we ask that you would make that work real to us, that we might know forgiveness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.